You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 3rd of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. Will people who won't listen to anybody else at COP24 about climate change listen to David Attenborough? My guests Isabel Hilton and Jacob Parakilis will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the now-concluded G20, at which Donald Trump claims to have fixed pretty much everything, despite appearing barely interested. The ongoing riots in France. Are they really unusually riotous by France's standards? And back at the G20, Australia's new Prime Minister learns a harsh lesson about his place in the hierarchy of world leaders. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Jacob Parakelos, deputy head of the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. Welcome both. We will start with a reflection on the recently concluded G20 summit in Buenos Aires. As has been the case with all such gatherings of international leaders these last 23 months, it was substantially a tableau of bewilderment at the interloper who, for reasons surpassing understanding, is President of the United States. Donald Trump, who on the strength of today's Twitter tantrum, is more preoccupied with his own gathering legal troubles, generally seemed barely interested, but were the leaders of the world's other most powerful nations able to accomplish much without him? Um, Jacob, um, how, how obviously do you think uh, your president is, is mailing it in at this point? Well, he definitely was paying attention during the signing of the USMCA or the NAFTA 2.0 Uzumka. trade agreement. Zumka. That's uh, not going to catch on. Is no, it? no, it really isn't. Uh, I think NAFTA 2.0, as bulky as it is, is is somewhat more uh, trips off the tongue a little bit more easily. Um, he, I think, really wanted that sort of a set piece. He likes to show himself reaching deals with other world leaders. Never mind the fact that the deal has to go through the legislatures in all three countries. That uh, Peña Nieto was one day away from being replaced by Andres Manuel López Obrador, who may or may not take the same positive positive view of the new NAFTA as his predecessor um, and all kinds of other potential hurdles. He got that. He managed to avoid any major blowups. He uh, didn't have a scheduled meeting with Vladimir Putin, which probably would have provoked a certain degree of, of uh, well, provocation in the US, especially what was happening with the Mueller investigation back home. So, you know, objectively, I think he kind of got through it relatively cleanly compared to some other summits, the last G7, for example. Um, Isabel, in amongst uh, what appears to be a little light witness tampering he's doing on Twitter, he, he has also found the time today to claim that at the G20, uh, he pretty much fixed everything with China. It's all sorted out. Uh, it's all good. We're all friends again. Everything's going to be great. Um, has he? Well, North Korea one day, China the next. I, I mean, the amazing, man's the man's it? astonishing. Um, it depends which statement you, you 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 read. If you read the Chinese statement, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, there's a remarkable divergence from the American statement. You uh, astonish me, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. So, 90 days isn't mentioned. All the kind of immediate purchase of uh, shed loads of agricultural material isn't mentioned. There are some bland statements about both sides working together to you know uh, for a win-win. 
harm, har- harmonious trading situation. There are a whole, uh, pretty much. Trump's list of things I have accomplished weren't in the Chinese statement. So uh, I think the the meeting to watch was probably not this one, except insofar it, it, as it has enabled further meetings to happen, which is not nothing. Um, but the meeting to watch is that of uh, Vice Premier Liu He, who is due to go to Washington in December and now probably will. Um, but he's the, serious, uh, he's the serious negotiator. And last time he was uh, in Washington, he got snubbed by President Trump. So... Now talks will begin. There's been no mention again in the Chinese statement of the risk of tariffs being reimposed after 90 days uh, if if no progress is made. In fact, 90 days wasn't mentioned. So we do seem to be, you know, in, on parallel tracks here, and it'll be up to the negotiators. We'll see how serious they are um, about about actually trying to bridge that gap. Uh, Jacob, is this Trump? attempting at least to pull his fairly uh, tried and tested manoeuvre by now of create problem, solve problem, claim credit. Yeah, I think that's fairly clearly what it is. And it follows very closely his efforts with the North Koreans, where in exchange for uh, four very, very almost meaninglessly vague bullet points, he's managed to get a strategically not particularly important uh, moratorium and missile testing. The North Koreans have a nuclear deterrent. They may very well have an ICBM capable of reaching the continental U.S. They've certainly tested it once, which is probably not as many times as you'd want for real reliability, but they've demonstrated a capability. And in exchange for that, Trump has sort of enabled South Korea to pursue the sunshine policy. And, And here, you see the North Korean strategy where South Korea is pursuing a very different strategy than the U.S. and everyone seems to be kind of standing back and letting it happen, largely because everyone's afraid that if you disturb the apple cart, the potential risk is nuclear war uh, and no one wants that. So everyone's willing to let things that might otherwise cause consternation happen. Uh, Isabel, the other leader who was obviously going to have the most attention paid to him uh, at the G20 was uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Vladimir Putin was ostentatiously delighted to see him. Most others less so. In in general, what did you make of the, the optics of his appearance? I think there's optics and substance. I mean, there was that, that Putin moment when they seemed to be congratulating each other on their efficiency at dispatching journalists, something that they're both rather good at. Um, but But although there wasn't a lot of hugging from other leaders, there were um, there were backstage meetings. You know, there weren't there was there was very little refusal to meet. Theresa May spoke to him. You know, a lot of a lot of reality kicked in behind the scenes. Um, although there was clearly embarrassment about the public moment, and in the in the family photograph, he was put on the extreme right back row. So presumably, a little judicious cropping might get rid of him altogether <laughs> if he disappears. You know, Chinese style. Um, but but I think I think for him. It would have looked like a, a victory if you think of the kind of, um, you know, what would be going back to Saudi television. There he was in the room. There he was talking to people. There he was being glad-handed by Putin. I think he would take that as a bit of a success for him. OK, well, let's move along slightly because those who felt shortchanged by the amount of conversation about climate change at the G20 may now feast themselves on the consolation of COP24, the United Nations Climate Change Conference already underway in Katowice. And scheduled to continue for the thick end of a fortnight. Insert own joke about the irony of this much hot air being generated. Representatives of 200 or so nations will attend, hoping to build on the 2015 
Paris Climate Accord, somewhat undermined though that has been by the United States withdrawal. Uh, Jacob, this came up at uh, the G20 as well, obviously, and it came up uh, since the last US government report on climate change, which was dumped on the day after Thanksgiving. Um, Donald Trump has flatly suggested again that he just doesn't believe any of this is true. He hasn't yet, as yet, advanced any evidence uh, underpinning uh, that assertion, and I don't think we should hold our breath. But what difference does the, well, to the fight against climate change, um, what difference to, there's a, that is a mess of prepositions. I'm going to start that question again. What difference uh, to the fight on climate change is made by the absence of American leadership? A huge difference, because... If you consider yourself to be in economic competition with the U.S., either directly uh, as China does or indirectly if you're sort of India or the European Union or another major power, and the U.S. is saying we're not going to restrict ourselves, we're going to burn as much uh, carbon dioxide causing uh, fuel as we can, we're going to maintain our preponderant sort of economic mass on that basis, you have a much Less incent- much lesser incentive to uh, find yourself bound by the same restrictions. If, it's, if it, the U.S. isn't going to agree to be part of the same system, then why should China or India or the EU or anyone else? At that point, you're responding solely to domestic pressure, and that's sometimes how politics works, but not always. And the, the odds of a sort of a binding global compact become much less if the U.S. isn't going to participate. Uh, Isabel, we played at the top of the show a clip of Sir David Attenborough, the great uh, British naturalist, uh, talking in apocalyptic tones about what could occur were climate change not tackled. Um, even if we accept that that's broadly the case, and that's that's broadly what we're looking at, does that kind of language actually help in terms of motivating people to either do anything about it or to pressurise their governments to do anything about it? Well, it is one side of the language. So there's been a long an argument in the climate change, you know, uh, communications community, if you like, between, you know, do you scare people witless um, with actually very real facts. I mean, if yeah, you look yeah. at the 1.5 degree report, uh, the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is losing, you know, 85% of the world's corals or losing all of them. And that has has really, really serious implications yes, for fish. Um, so you know, you have you have lots of reasons to be terrified. It's it's a rational response. On the other hand, it is also argued that if you if you terrify people too much, they become paralysed, fatalistic, join crazy cults, or you know, or whatever they they might do. So so you have to do both. And and actually, I think certainly kind of post Paris, there's been a tremendous upsurge of doing both, and um, for for very sound reasons. Renewables are cheaper than, than, than coal, they're cheaper than new coal. You know, not only are these things um, better for the planet and better for human health, they're actually cheaper now. So, so if you were making a rational economic case, uh, you would pursue the renewables, you know, energy transition route uh, rather than clinging to a 19th century technology. It makes no sense at all. Now, just to follow that up, though, do you, do you think that may be what is eventually going to tip the balance, not appeals to people's uh, conscience about this generation's stewardship of the planet, but just when it becomes clearer that 
clean energy is going to make people more money than than what we're currently using. Well, it is already. I mean, if you look at the kind of investments, the new investments in in clean energy, uh, that that's already happening. But at the same time, you have very powerful uh, entrenched uh, interests which continue to demand subsidies and push for uh, more fossil fuels. And the problem is that the window is now very, very uh, close. So 12, 15 years to really to start leveling out um, before we get into uncontrolled uncontrollable climate change and there is a difference there is a big difference between let's say even two degrees which isn't safe but if you get to the point where you trigger all kinds of tipping points like methane release from from melting permafrost then you get into a set of 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 escalating circumstances that we we just can't control and then you're in real trouble Uh, jacob it hasn't always been the case that american leaderships have been uh hostile uh to the idea of tackling climate change in fact donald trump i think is the first outright climate change denier to have occupied the white house but do you get the sense that there is still a certain amount of paralysis among publics? I remember years ago, this is going back to about 2005, I interviewed former Vice President Al Gore at some length about this, and this has obviously been a particular hobby horse of his. And he, he did acknowledge that, as I think I quote him accurately, he said people do tend to go from denial to despair quite quickly. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate read. But the problem in the US context is that the president exists within a partisan context where it's not as though there's a bipartisan consensus on global warming and the president is bucking it. He has virtually the entire institutional Republican Party behind him. And while there are a few sort of at this point, you could almost call them outcast or uh, idiosyncratic Republicans like Arnold Schwarzenegger and at the margins, John Kasich, who have been more friendly to the idea that climate change is real, it's happening, and it's caused by humans, you'll find much more denialism. And this idea, well, the, you know, the, the temperature is changing. Yes, that's measurable, but it's not caused by humans. It's caused by sunspots or magic rays from a nebula or some other completely unsupported scientific. And, and there's enough money behind this because of those entrenched interests that Isabel was talking about that uh, you know, there is considerable money in denial. And at that point, it may switch over. At some point, it may switch over not only to sort of despair, but to really wildly radical solutions like geoengineering, which we really don't have any control over. It's a quote from Upton Sinclair. Is it not that it's very hard to persuade persuade someone to understand something if their salary depends on them not understanding it? <laughs> It's also you can't reason a man out of a position he hasn't reasoned himself into, which is also applies. But where where U.S. leadership really showed its value was at Paris, because what what the U.S. In its good moments, likes to think of itself as a climate leader, which in policy terms it's not. But what it can do is mobilize others. And you know, when the, the when, when the kind of power of American diplomacy gets into action, as it did in the run up to Paris, it gets all sorts of others falling into line. Right now, we're in the worst possible moment where they've announced uh, that they will withdraw, but they are still in the game. So they're sitting there in those negotiating rooms in Paris, being obstructive and difficult and and having a a, a drag effect on on everyone else and encouraging people like the newly elected president of Brazil and others who who wouldn't, I think, have the same room for manoeuvre had the US not elected Donald Trump. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Jacob Parakilis and Isabel Hilton. Coming up next, France's protests and where they fit in the lineage of French protest. 
Mention the name Funkhaus in Berlin and you'll be greeted with excited curiosity or a mysterious smile from those in the know. The former communist broadcasting house got a new lease of life when young musicians hunkered down. Monocle Films set out on a tour of the stunning studios and recording halls. Funkhaus on the same wavelength, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Jacob Parakilis and Isabel Hilton. Around France, cities are tidying up after another series of protests slash riots attributed to what has become known as the Yellow Vest Movement, the latest in a long series of such insurrections, which has throughout French history articulated incoherent discontent by throwing cobblestones at riot police and setting fire to their neighbours' cars. Upwards of 130,000 people took part at the weekend, according to the Ministry of the Interior, In Marseille, an elderly woman was killed after being hit by a tear gas canister while trying to close her windows, the fourth death since these protests began. Um, Isabel, is the the protests in France are obviously not even slightly unusual. There's something of a national and especially in Paris municipal tradition. Is the violence we're seeing unusual? I, I think this is quite unusual. I was thinking back to May 68, and I don't think even at that, you know, mass uh, protest which went on for weeks and months. There was I one fatality, if there w- Yes, there was, you know, there was a constant con- con- uh, confrontation with the with the CRS and a lot of tear gas and a lot of pavé thrown. But, I, but still, I I don't remember images of burning cars and, and, and kind of blockades of the kind that we've seen. Blockades, yes, but not the violence. Uh, I mean, it, it is a, a commonplace of French life, as I was saying. And I, I have been lightly tear-gassed by the CIS myself. Um, I, I was just in the way, I think. I didn't take it personally. Um, Jacob, do you get any clear idea or does anybody have any clear idea of what is actually motivating this? Well, the immediate driver seems to be opposition to a proposed additional tax on diesel cars. And this has been read as an assault on rural people who have to drive more. It's been read as an assault by the Macron government on sort of more traditional French communities. But like a lot of protest movements, it's not quite that simple. It doesn't just fit into a neat sort of, well, right-wing populists in rural places kind of box there's, you know, and and you've had attempts by both the the sort of Le Pen far right wing and the Mélenchon far left wing to kind of claim it without much success. So it's it seems, you know, it, in the way that we don't really have a vocabulary to describe this kind of thing, but it seems like it's a general sort of factor of entropy, of a general sort of upsurge of discontent with the state and the way things are. I mean, that being the case, Isabel, is it something that can actually be reasoned with or accommodated? I think that it's not one thing. I think you have uh, a, a quite a wide section of, of very fed-up citizens who feel that Macron, who came in on this, you remember, great wave of optimism and promise, um, has served the well-off and not, uh, not the... Um, not the middle classes. Um, and in the middle of those discontented citizens, you have young men in balaclavas who are burning things. And that, not necessarily coterminous, not necessarily the same thing. Um, but you, if you look back at, at, for example, the Pujadist movement, there is, you know, there are lots of kinds of protests in France. So you get workers protesting, that always, you know, strikes uh, and all that kind of thing. But you also have these intermittent tax revolts, which was what Pujadism was in the mm-hmm. 1950s. And that lasted, what, three or four years and, and is still a kind of memory of, of, of you know, French protests. So 
it it didn't it doesn't it doesn't go on forever and and in the end it it could be reasoned with but i think that macron is an inexperienced politician in many ways and i think he's he has to find a new message at least or to find some way of demonstrating to those hard pressed uh, middle class and lower middle class people that his agenda isn't all about business and the rich uh, Jacob, the, the spectacle of what Isabel describes as the fed-up citizen, I think that the German word for them is Wutburger, um, it's, it's become a commonplace of discourse. You know, we, we've, we've seen a lot of it in Trump voters, in Brexit voters, in various populist voters uh, around uh, the, the Western developed world. Just a hypothetical to hang out there, what would happen if President Emmanuel Macron, who has gone close on a couple of occasions, or some other leader just went, Guys, seriously, you live in a modern, functional, peaceful, stable, orderly, prosperous 21st century democracy. Maybe stop whining. I don't think it would work. Um, I think that's one of those things that, you know, it's, this, this idea of sort of rage at the government isn't new. And we kind of append it to Brexit voters and Trump voters and, you know, to some extent, Corbyn voters and Sanders voters and sort of, you know, anger at the status quo. But, you know, it... it, it Patty Shafsky's network came out in 1976. I'm <laughs> mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. I mean, people being angry at the government and expressing it in terms that the elites don't necessarily approve of is not a new phenomenon. I don't think it's a particularly simple or straightforward one. So a president who is as closely identified with the elite as Macron is probably wouldn't have much, much success telling them to, you know, take a hike because they're angry. Well, another perhaps condescending interpretation that I can try out on the panel here, Isabel, uh, you, you, you raised the spectre of 1968 uh, earlier. Uh, Charles de Gaulle, of course, famously responded to that by declaring France is bored. Uh, do, do you think there's anything to be said for that analysis in this case? I, I think it will. I, I do think it'll, this this particular one will will, will burn out. But um, but at the same time, it is in the context of the of of the rise of fringe parties, the rise of the National Front, and the rise of the of the left. So it it's one of those slightly febrile you know moments in terms of formal politics. Um, Macron saying, you're too tedious, go away, you're not cool. Mm, I'm not sure that would work. They I, would say, I, hey, I, 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 I would move to France and take up citizenship just so I could vote for him. But you know, you, you're right, he, he, he's not going to do it. And Jacob, if he's not going to do that, actually, what are his options? Well, you can back down. He could uh, try to sort of find a different way of funding his environmental programs without raising the diesel tax. The problem with that is it's kind of a hard stop. Ultimately, if you want to deal particularly with air pollution in cities, you have to do something about diesel cars. And that something is going to make people who drive diesel cars very angry. So at some point, that's just if you if you want to have you know, to, to sort of follow on from our previous discussion. If you want to have an environmental agenda, at some point you are going to anger people who depend on today's technologies, namely polluting diesel cars, um, and that's not an easy thing to manage. Um, the other possibility would be to basically sort of assume that the protests don't have the capability to destabilize the government and to sort of push through while he's got momentum and say, right, this is an unfair movement. It's a complaint about something, you know, complaint about modernity. We're just going to push the, the uh, you know, damn the torpedo full speed ahead to, to borrow an American turn of phrase, um, you know, and, and try to push through. But that risks 
empowering his opponents on the the edges of the political spectrum, which for someone with a 23% approval rating might be a bit of a danger. Okay. Well, finally tonight, uh, during the G20 weekend, the people of Australia found themselves experiencing a hitherto unusual understanding of what it's like to be German Chancellor Angela Merkel. She too appears to have lost track of who Australia's Prime Minister even is. During her bilateral meeting with, and this is the the sound of me checking my notes, uh, Scott Morrison, she was photographed, one hopes in entirely knowingly, uh, holding a crib sheet bearing Morrison's image and what appeared to be brief biographical notes. Minutes of desultory research on my part have failed to locate a polysyllabic German word for chair-warming non-entity who won't last six months, but if such exists, that will surely have been on there as well. Um, Isabel, please reassure me that Angela Merkel knew exactly that she was being photographed and exactly how this was going to look. <laughs> I, I like the idea that we've been underestimating her sense of humour all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you may well be right. I mean, she. I wonder how she would have. There, were, there was one one moment in uh, in Bolivia where there were five presidents in a day, so it would have been hard to keep up. Maybe <laughs> Australia is approaching that event horizon. I mean, I'm going to be spending three weeks there pretty shortly, and I'm quite nervous about being asked to run the country for a few minutes while I'm there. <laughs> well, everybody was laughing at the uh, at the poor old Argentinians who kept messing up the welcome ceremonies and you know failing to get to the airport in time to meet Macron who found himself being greeted by a yellow-vested airport worker, <laughs> rather, no doubt to, to his dismay, and then striking up the Chinese national anthem for someone who could have been President Xi Jinping but wasn't. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I think you have, to, you have to allow for uh, turnover and uh, confusion in these, in these moments. Because I, I did want to open this, this glorious faux pas up to ask you both if there's ever been occasions on which you've either been woefully unprepared for a meeting yourselves uh, or been perhaps interviewed by somebody who was other than right now, uh, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Jacob. Well, this reminds me, this is not a story of mine, but it's too good not to share. A former colleague of mine who shall remain nameless was an intern <laughs> at Chatham House and was put on his first day on front door duty, greeting guests to some event. And his job was to stop people who weren't coming in for the event. So he saw someone he didn't recognize and stopped them and said, I'm sorry, sir, are you, are you going into the event? And the man looked at him and said, well, no, I'm not, but my name is Robin Niblett, and I'm the director of Chatham House, <laughs> which led to a certain amount of embarrassment all around. Glad his security, service, his security arrangements worked. Uh, Isabel, have you either caught somebody out or been caught out in such circumstances? There have been so many occasions. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think possibly the most mortifying was uh, when I was on the John Major general election bus, and after a very long day, we were somewhere in the northwest of England, and this, the candidate, a conservative candidate with a very large badge on saying which said Ken again uh, bounded up and I said so Mr. Again I was <laughs> that took some getting over um, but <laughs> but one which I think I'm probably excused from too much embarrassment for I was researching a book on on Tibetan Buddhism and, and secured an interview with one of the most famous reincarnate lamas um, in, in the whole Galugpa tradition when I turned up he was two years old <laughs> Which was Amazing. the problem with reincarnation. Well, yeah, clearly, <laughs> clearly. What, what did you end up asking him? I know there wasn't very much I could ask him. His mother didn't speak any Chinese or English, so we were a bit stuck. So see, we... see, the thing is, there's always been a lesson I've, I've tried. I, I don't, unfortunately, have the nerve to carry it off. But if, if you have basically the brass neck just to be able to style it out, there's a lot to be said for it. I was several years ago doing a, a day of press uh, flogging one of my books, uh, still available from all good reasons 
retailers, etc. But it was one of those things where there's, you know, 15 people from Australian, Australian regional newspapers calling at half-hour interview intervals. Uh, and one, I forget which newspaper it was, some regional paper in the middle of nowhere, was put through to their sort of features hack, who I think had returned from quite a good lunch. His first question was, right, who are you and why am I talking to you? <laughs> Well, when I when I presented a, 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 a current when he I wrote a very good piece in a, fairness to him a current affairs program on a rival uh, radio station which shall be nameless my my colleague said there will be moments when you look across the studio and you can't think who this is but there are three questions that'll get you through one is who do you blame the second is so what happens now and my third and absolute favourite is that's all very well but what about the north of the country. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that instructive note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Uh, my two guests, whose names, fortunately, I have written down right here, Isabel Hilton and Jacob Parakilis, thank you both very much for joining us. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Robert Bound. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you for listening. 